Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. Here you'll find interviews with writers you already love, like Jennifer Egan and Rebecca Mackay, mixed in with up-and-coming voices like Alexandra Kleeman and Rahman Alam. You'll find us wherever you listen to podcasts, but check out previous episodes at burnedbybooks.com and on Instagram and Twitter at burnedbybooks. Let's start the show. In Kashana Kali's debut novel, The Survivalists, Aretha, single, black, and an ambitious lawyer, wasn't looking for love amongst the preppers of Brooklyn. And yet she finds it in a pre-war brownstone in a thriving part of Brooklyn, where Aaron, Brittany, and James roast locally sourced coffee while hoarding and selling guns to prepare for the apocalypse, whether related or otherwise. Aaron is a handsome, gentle teetotaler who has made a success out of a home-based coffee roaster, Tactical Coffee, whose name is a giveaway to the anxious preparations going on behind the scenes and in the fallout shelter behind the house. Brittany is from a lineage of black Massachusetts preppers and gun owners, and James is a white plagiarist whose public fall from journalistic grace makes him unhirable anywhere except as a body man for Brittany's gun-running enterprise. Once Aretha has fallen for Aaron, they make an odd foursome in that coffee-roasting, gun-overflowing house. Even as Aretha adds to her go-bag and participates in more and more of the side dealings of tactical coffee, she is unsure precisely what survivalism means to Erin, or to herself. Told in a voice that is wry and hilarious, while being willing to rest with complicated paradoxes and uncomfortable ironies, the survivalists makes you fall for Aretha and Erin even as you trouble over their adventures in coffee and guns. There's a lot of fun to be had in Kashana's loving depiction of preppers in Brooklyn, but there are difficult questions that she leaves in our laps. What is the endgame of a career that eats you up? Who gets to be called a survivalist? Does the Second Amendment protect a black person's right to bear arms? And many more intractable questions of modern American life in the age of covid January 6, and the never-ending time of precarious Black life. Kashana is a writer for the wonderfully animated comedy The Great North, and she has previously worked on The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. And in a former life, she was an antitrust lawyer. 
I'm so excited to talk about the survivalists. Welcome to the show, Kashana. Thank you. It's lovely to have you here. Um, in your acknowledgments, you give a shout out to the gun and food stockpilers of your youth. Did you draw on any direct experience to build your fictional world of survivalists? Well, I, that's my parents, actually. They're the gun and food stockpilers in my youth. They had <laughs> a cabinet full of canned chili and canned um, hot tamales, like the Mississippi, like Southern kind, not like the kind that are like Mexican. And yeah. Um, okay. That's that's a book of in itself. Um, and then they had Yeah, guns. it sounds they like had, it. <laughs> yeah, I didn't realize. Yeah, hot tamales are apparently a, a Mexican black like combo from like Mississippi. My family like is originally southern beyond my parents, like my grandparents and stuff. Okay. But yeah, they used to have those and they used to have the guns and I was always like, Well, what's up with that guys? Like why <laughs> what are we prepping for? And they were very much just like, Oh, you never know. You know, I mean, we live in Wisconsin. There could be ice storms. There could be snowstorms. You know, sometimes <laughs> you can't shovel all that. And I'm like, oh, guys. <laughs> <laughs> so you just okay. shoot away the ice. Clearly, <laughs> <laughs> especially if, you know, it, it really goes through your front door. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, that's so, so interesting. And, you know, it is, you know, it's weather that is at least partially responsible for, for Aaron's uh, survivalist bent. So it, it, it was for your parents the, the possibility that that Wisconsin winter could just keep them stowed in the house for so long they'd need to have backup food? Weather is part of it because you truly don't know. It's a very extreme weather climate down there. We had like tornadoes and in addition to all the cold weather stuff. Um, yeah, but also, I don't know. I don't know that they trusted their neighbors a bunch. And like we were one of a handful of families, black families in a white town. I don't know that they trusted us either. I think some of that distrust worked their way into, mm. you know, what might we be preparing for? Hard to say. I, you mm -hmm. don't necessarily get things explained clearly to you when you're a kid, especially when you're like, so let's talk about you being armed. But um, <laughs> I kind of got the sense that they, they just, you know, they had some anxiety and they had some worry and they were not sure about being kind of alone in like a white town. Mm -hmm. I don't know that they would ever use the guns or whatever. I don't know that that's their thing, but they were just, you know, they were like, well, we can't call the cops. And I'm like, well, I mean, you, you can't. Yeah. But I don't know that mm. any of this is going to work out. They never painted anything to me that made any sense. But that's, I don't know, I feel like that's the great premise for a novel. This doesn't make sense. Now what? <laughs> yeah, you're, you're so right. That That's like a perfect um, novel writing prompt, I think. Aretha does not love being a lawyer, and it didn't seem like you loved being an antitrust lawyer yourself. Um, was that career direction, and it's it seemed like it wasn't terribly, you know, a long part of your, your life, um, does that get inflected in Aretha's own kind of struggles and, and both ambitions, but then also disappointments with being a lawyer? Yeah, I'd say so. Um... I I was a pretty accidental lawyer. I'm first generation college, first generation law school. I didn't know what to do after college because nobody in my family had ever been to college and nobody was particularly like my advisors didn't know what to do either. Madison is not like, you know, the land of plenty when it comes to post-employment jobs after college. So I took the LSAT and I ended up as a lawyer and then I ran into a whole host of other problems, I guess, other than just being accidentally there in the first place, um, which is just. 
I don't know. As a working class black woman, I was kind of an odd fit in a white shoe law firm, I guess. Mm -hmm. I I definitely remember thinking, oh, I can chance this down. I'll just wear suits and I won't talk very much and it'll, nobody will notice. And that was, that's not how that works. (laughs) Oh my gosh. um, I was, I think I was fairly good at what I did. I won a case in front of the second circuit when I was a second year associate. Like I'm, I'm really Mm. cutthroat and I don't mind winning like Aretha is. But I, at the same time, there's a lot of, well, you, with you, when you're on defense side, like when you take out a lot of loans and you go to like a high class law school, a lot of times you end up defending corporations who don't necessarily do things that you agree with. Aretha mm-hmm. runs into that an absolute ton in the book. Every single lawyer, yeah. myself, every single lawyer I know, same. If you're young and idealistic, this is not necessarily your dream. But on top of that, she just has a lot of issues fitting in at all her law firm, too. She's just she's trying really hard. She's tamping it down. She swears, you know, and it's just kind of not working. And I think that's a fairly common experience for people of color, for young lawyers of all stripes, given how cutthroat the industry is and how often people get fired. Yeah. And and she she comes to this. Well, there's this kind of strange dynamic that she really wants the the stability and she does like aspects of of lawyering. But then when she goes into anaphylactic shock after eating bee pollen and that's not a good enough excuse for missing one day of work, she starts to come up upon the kind of grosser parts of uh, a capitalist system that demands everything from you. And, And I wonder what interested you in that kind of dynamic between a career that on one hand offers stability and something that, you know, almost can't be purchased, that you would be able to maybe even buy a home, uh, but on the other hand, promises to eat up everything uh, that you care about? Well, I would argue, I hate generational analysis, I will say as a general caveat, with that aside, I come from a generation of, of people where I feel like that is one of the major conflicts in our lives. We are not our parents. We are not going to work at the same place for 40 years and then retire with a big fat pension, able to comfortably afford the homes that we bought in the 1970s. We are people who end up working long hours at places that are pretty clear about having no like general loyalty to us. I mean, there are people who get lucky. There are folks who have individualized circumstances that are more favorable than what I'm describing, but just myself, the people I've known, the folks you read about in the news, there's just a lot of, oh, well, we just decided to cut things today and get rid of people just because, or we don't Mm. think it's working out just because, and we don't really necessarily feel a need to tell you. And there isn't necessarily, it's like some bigger economic indicator that is indicating like why we are laying people off. But yeah, I just, I, I, from an environment in Brooklyn, you know, it's very common to work a job for a year or two years, especially in media, um, which is where a lot of, a lot of what I was dealing with there, like that's where the book is from. Um, You just, you know, they get rid of you all the time. (laughs) And so it's hard to just go, ah, I'm very emotionally devoted to this job where they could fire me tomorrow. I know we've always been an at-will employment country, but it still feels like things have gotten even more precarious. I just, to be honest, honest, I don't know that I know, know more than a handful of people who just haven't gotten canned in the last five years more than once. And so what do you do with, how are you supposed to strive and be ambitious? What are you supposed to aim for? If at any point Mm. the rug can be yanked underneath you. 
Yeah, and that's where the where Aaron's house comes into this, I think, because Aretha finds out that Aaron owns this brownstone in which he and his roommates live and roast coffee. Her best friend Nia is like totally blown out of the water that anyone their age could actually own property in New York. And there's this fantasy again of a stability, a maybe an older kind of stability from a different generation um, and being able to escape what for Aretha is kind of the constant worry of having become an orphaned child. And, you know, that combined with, you know, the long and and racist history of property ownership for black families um, makes the house a particularly rich point of of drama in, in the novel. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of that brownstone, both to the relationship between Aretha and Aaron, and then to kind of questions of homeownership more broadly. For Aretha, it's part of what makes Aaron the perfect guy. He's attractive, he's got a successful business, and he's somehow managed to pull down one of the bigger marks of stability that exists under the values of our country owning a home. In New York, this is even tougher. It's really hard to own there. Everything is so expensive, it would make your eyes bleed. A brownstone, mm-hmm. when I was living in Brooklyn, if it was like brand, brand new, might go for like $3 million. If it was incredibly banged up, like the one I lived in, where the ceiling fell in on me three times, you could maybe price it out at about $1.5 These are not, I work a regular job and earn a regular salary kind of prices. Um, apartments, (laughs) even if, even if you're not buying the whole building, an apartment there might be like 500,000 to about a million in central Brooklyn. And like the, well, everything in Brooklyn is a nice neighborhood now, let's be honest. But, um, (laughs) Mm -hmm. like, Mm -hmm. I I think there's like, if people are picturing non-nice neighborhoods in Brooklyn, maybe that was the seventies. I mean, East (laughs) New York is expensive now. Um, (laughs) but so the point being, even an apartment is not like affordable, you know, on like a regular salary, even somebody like Aretha is just like, how do I stay employed long enough to afford to actually stay someplace? But you live in New York and it's exciting and it's fun and she's young and she's going out and she's got friends and it's this irresistible lifestyle. Even if she doesn't love her job, she likes the competitiveness of it and she loves New York. And so there's this part of her that's like, could I stay here? Could I have a future here? Is there any way I could afford that? And so in addition to all of Aaron's pluses, I feel like him bringing the house to the table is just this, I don't know, for somebody who has no ties, she is an orphan. She's just like, wow, this is the guy. This is like, the re- this could be the rest of my life. Like, I could stop worrying about just most of the stuff I worry about all the time if he were to mm. work out. Um, I, that puts so much more on that relationship then possibly makes sense to put on a relationship too, though. I just feel like it's, it's hard to be like, okay, this other person who owns something, I don't, you know, this is, this is it for me. I think it puts a lot of pressure on Aretha and Aaron. And I think, you know, in the, it's some of why their relationship has a lot of the difficulties it does in the novel. Um, homeownership generally, I feel like it's another one of the big questions of the generation I belong to. I, I know a lot of folks who are living in a lot of cities where it's just sort of like, again, how do you keep a job long enough to, to buy something? Or we can't afford our parents' homes. You know, Mm -hmm. but there's this kind of American expectation that at a point you're going to get out of the house and you're going to own something. You know, it's the American dream is dead, but, you know, we all grow up learning it anyway. And it's part of that. But also just on a more practical basis, it's nice to own something and to not worry that you're going to get kicked out if you can't 
you know, afford rent for every, like some month too. But we just don't have that either. A lot of <laughs> yeah, us. Yeah, and there, there's that funny paradox um, that you know the the survivalists in this house that that Aaron owns seem to have more more worries, not less. Uh, and and I and I liked that. It doesn't solve. And Aretha can't really see that because um, she sees okay, this is the way to stay in New York and be stable and have less worries. And yet this house is all chock full of of worries. You know, it's also chock full of like amazing coffee and you are you're clearly into coffee you lovingly describe the work of the chemics in in brewing a single origin cup that needs no smoothing out from milk or sugar were you living out your own fantasy of having a roaster right in your house in in making aaron's house the uh the coffee roaster Oh, yeah. I mean, I know people are into coffee, but like I'm one of those. So I bring a bag home on vacation after I've like harassed the barista for an hour about the notes. And the cup <laughs> people. I drove I used That's to, I drove around North Carolina looking for a roaster with my boyfriend and his friend. And we like they, we didn't know they weren't a cafe. So we actually drove down to their like roasting facilities. And we're like, so we heard about third wave. We read like this in, this inside baseball mag drink magazine called imbibe guys like we're coming here to see what's up with the new coffee and they were just like this was like 2010 they thought they were like are you guys a professional they're just like oh no we're just insane <laughs> like i and also this stuff tastes really good i still remember the very first cup of third wave i had when i moved to new york i was like a first year law student and we were just looking for things to do me and my boyfriend. And so we went to go get the third wave coffee and the guy was like, this tastes like blueberries. And I mm. tasted it and I was like, it does. It was the first time I'd ever tasted anything in coffee. It was mind blowing. What counts yeah, as wa third wave? Second wave, the way people always describe second wave is like, so you go to Starbucks and it's like hazelnut flavored and like you're putting creamer in it, you know? Like mm -hmm. third wave coffee, you should be able to drink all by itself. And okay. the notes that I mentioned, everyone mentions those when you're describing third wave. It's always, well, this tastes like chocolate and licorice. Well, this tastes like butterscotch. What do you, what do you, where do you go in LA for your like proper, proper cup? I'm a member of the Go Get Em Tiger subscription program where they mail me two bags of what they want once a month. And then they send a little cute note card that explains like where it's from, what are the conditions it's grown under, and what are the notes in the cup. But I also love um, Hilltop Coffee, which is black owned on the south side. Civil Coffee in Highland Park. We're just drowning in good coffee here. Yeah, no, you you really are. <laughs> well. Black survivalists are really not something we see much of in popular culture, or at least they're not given that title. Uh, even the fungus zombie apocalypse of The Last of Us gives us mostly white preppers. Given the relative safety for um, white people living in especially rural America, there's an argument to be made that if anyone should be a survivalist, hoarding guns and preparing for the worst kind of disaster, it's black people. Um, can you talk about this kind of strange paradox that it is white folks who get to be allowed to be called survivalists when they live in very safe places and people who face both you know structural and real material violence often people of color are not really allowed to have that kind of title 
Well, to be honest, um, I think it has a lot to do with the fact that survivalism, you know, is preparedness, like it's preparing for the worst, but it's also in all the research I've done and my own personal experiences, et cetera, pretty heavily correlated with gun ownership, which is really mm-hmm. not a value that is particularly encouraged among black folks. Um, but like, I mean, white people, like I, I've seen pictures of guys carrying guns in Target, you know, and when, tar- yeah, when yeah. Texans were trying to do more open carry stuff like a few years mm-hmm. ago, like gun ownership is deeply, deeply encouraged in our white population. It is. But I think America in general is more it's more of a humor white fears than humor black fears place. I mean, mm-hmm. no matter what white people are afraid of, that's okay. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I and think it's taken seriously. Encouraging folks, even encouraging white folks, even all the way down to survivalism, fits well within that rubric of oh, well, you're white and you're afraid of it. That makes sense. Yeah, and then just the, it, I mean, you brought up the connection to guns, and I think almost any historian worth their worth their title will tell you that the second amendment was never meant for black folks in the united states in fact the you know some of the only major gun control legislation of the mid 20th century was passed in response to to california black panthers coming to the state house armed to show their second amendment rights and demand an end to state killing and oppression do you see Britney's gun hoarding and general anger toward the war- world as coming out of a sense that in a country where there's double the number of guns to people, that black people still cannot really safely own a gun? I don't really see Britney as looking at that dichotomy per se. I think she gets her quest for gun ownership and also her survivalist tendencies from her family. And her family are just these black, like, we're doing this for ourselves. This isn't necessarily about demonstrating to our neighbors that we're armed or prepared. We just mm. we just know that within our own house. Like, it's more insular and less, like, outward looking than that. And then do, you know, when you were writing about sort of all this gun movement and guns as house protection and survivalist protection. And, you know, you have Aretha sort of slowly becoming more and more kind of involved first unwillingly and then sort of out of curiosity in this what's going on with the guns. Were you at all, you know, were you worried about how it would come off, you know, be talking about guns in this way um, when, you know, it's so clear that guns are this kind of like constant and particular American tragedy. Was there any worry um, in in doing that? Or did you feel sort of confident that you could kind of burrow into the interesting and and oftentimes conflicted history of gun ownership? I had confidence in my ability to delve into guns in a multifaceted way, but I think it's personally, it's hard for me to write about guns without worrying. It's going to be misinterpreted in some direction somewhere. I mean, if you're, I, (laughs) and so far the book's been out like two months. I think I have seen every reaction possible to the guns in the book too. Um, Mm. What kind of stuff do you, what, what do you see? Folks seem pretty split on, no, like she's not actually pro survivalism too. She's actually is she encouraging people to own guns to you know, is this just proper fanfic? I think somebody said <laughs> <laughs> somewhere. Um I think proper fanfic would be hilarious personally. Um and I I don't know. I feel like at the end of the day though, I, I know what I wanted to achieve with the gun discussion. I think it's it's wide ranging and multifaceted. I think I did it. 
um, it's it was great, like you know, shotgunning everything on Goodreads for a while. But I'm I'm off the internet, like off the looking at you know a lot of the feedback about it, leaving it to folks to develop their own interpretations. Camp. <laughs> I I I think that's probably the sanest way to approach that. I'm interested in James, who's this sort of like you know, out, out of place person in the house. He's the one white person living um, there. He's a disgraced journalist. And this is really his place of last resort. Without James, Aaron's house is more a space of a, a kind of black community. Does he distort the picture of what the four of them are doing? Or what is the interesting complication that he adds to that question of resistance? Well, a lot of levels, I don't think that the black characters in the house necessarily see him as a part of anything. Like they, they yeah, live in the yeah. house, and I think they're all friends. But he's just sort of this this appendage that they find kind of lightly funny. He's often <laughs> drunk. He's like the worst. He provides the worst security like anyone could possibly <laughs> ever provide. He's not serious on a lot of levels. He truly thinks he's going to get back into journalism. I mean, mm. the fact that he, he keeps like applying to, to new schools and things. <laughs> Which is backwards. Like he was at the Washington yeah. Post. I don't I know. Love I that detail. Kind of... I thought that was amazing. <laughs> he's like, I can do this. I can figure out a way in. I think people sometimes when you've been cut off from your livelihood from what I studied about the plagiarist, they'll do anything. Which I get. You're just you don't especially if you've say gotten into your job enough that you identified with it. I think James is in that camp. It's like, well, why can't I have this? Well, I'm gonna I can climb the mountain. I can like reach the summit again. I could do it. But now, in a lot of ways, he's included in the survivalism, but now he's not included in the blackness. And so in a lot of ways, it's like he's not included at all. He's just a white person who's just sort of like a bit character. He's an appendage. I, I feel like that's kind of unusual, but I wanted to try doing that and seeing how it works. Well, it creates a really fascinating dynamic. And and I think, you know, I, Aretha obviously has a very complicated relationship to him, both disgust and attraction. Um, but it uh, it does fascinating work in the in that house. I, I'm interested. You write really funny dialogue. It's it's quick it's it's witty there's all kinds of references interesting like exchanges especially between aretha and her best friend nia how has your work on you know writing writing com direct comedy for the daily show and um on the great north worked its way into your novelistic practice well, I was probably known as a dialogue person in both of those places. Like, I, <laughs> like, I, I don't know. I, <laughs> I was the I was the one liner. I think at one point at the Daily Show they called me the sniper. I um, <laughs> I've always oh, I love. You that. know what's funny? <laughs> it's honestly it's from Twitter. Twitter made me mm. shorter and sharper. It was just sort of like I joined Twitter in like 2010 or something. And I really liked the sensibility. I loved the kind of edginess of like New York newspaper dumb too. And I, so I just ended up crafting this voice that was like short and sharp and funny that I liked. And I actually carried that with me to TV. Like I was that person beforehand. And then I wrote this novel with it. And and did you feel like it was really easy to to cross over with that with that kind of dialogue, or did anything have to change for you? Um, 
No, I felt like that dialogue worked. I mean, you just the only difference between like like late night style writing and in the book is probably that you wouldn't want things to be as like dated referency. I think, but mm. there are ways mm. to write in that tone without going. I wonder what happened in 2018 today that translates very well to novels. Well, it really comes across that you are uh, a dialogue ac- expert slash sniper. Before we let you go, um, I would love to hear if you have some recommended reads for our listeners, things that are sitting on your nightstand um, that you've been loving recently. Chris Terry, he, he came out a couple years ago. He's mixed, like his he's half white, half black. His, it's set in okay. Richmond, Virginia. Books are never set in Richmond. I was immediately like, wow, where is this? What is this like? Um, <laughs> he's got a complicated relationship to blackness in the book, and it literally functions around um, an imaginary black side of him that keeps giving him a black card for certain behavior and then taking it away for other behavior. It's this oh, insane metaphor. But he he does a really nice job with it. He doesn't like hit you over the head with it. Uh, everything seems very realistic. But he's so he's basically got this realist plot, but with like an imaginary friend that talks to him about blackness as he goes through his day to day working at a coffee shop and then being at a punk band existence. Hmm. The coffee shop is blacker. The punk scene is whiter. He feels sort of torn between the two, and as well as the two sides of himself. It's a good character study on what that means. I that thought sounds it was great. funny too, actually. Mm. NPR loved it too. Um, <laughs> yeah, for people who are in NPR. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I thought, yeah, it's funny, it's conversational, it's casual, but it's this really good explanation of what is modern blackness? What does it mean? And I'll, the other book I'll recommend is um, The Town of Babylon by Alejandro Varela. He. I, I do not gravitate towards suburban story as much. I'm from a city in Wisconsin and I've lived in New York and LA, but he goes into, he makes all of these suburbanites off of Long, on Long Island, just these very vi- like vivid, real people. I was hmm. upset when the book ended. That's I hard like to I do. Out with 40 people I knew and could see in my mind's eye. They are very torn between living in the city and the suburbs, almost all of them because it's Long Island and a lot of them are immigrants, did a stint in New York City proper first, as lots of people do, before going, maybe I'd like a yard. And that proves to be a choice that is so much more complicated than I think it is typically presented as. And he delves into those complications and he does a very nice job with them. It's also very, 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 very funny. Like mm. much funnier than like regular novels. That's I'm I'm always looking for for a novel that can be both, as you say, a, like a rich caricature character portrait, but manage to be funny as well. And you're right that suburbia is difficult to do these days. But it sounds like both Black Card and the Town of Babylon are amazing and should be on people's must read lists. Yeah, I totally agree. They should. And I am just really thankful that I got a chance to read The Survivalists, and I think that people will absolutely love it. I think it is just fascinating, funny, um, gripping, and a really wonderful picture of America at a particular moment. And so I'm so glad that I got to talk to you about it, Kashana. Thanks. Um, Thanks for asking me such good questions. It was really a pleasure to talk to you, too. Well, that's all from me for now. 
Thanks to Kashana Kali for taking the time to talk with me about her debut novel, The Survivalists. You can find Kashana's recommendations and all of our previous episodes at the website, burnedbybooks.com. Next week, I talk with Rashid Newsom, showrunner on the series Bel Air, about his extraordinary debut novel, My Government Means to Kill Me. Until then, this has been Burned by Books. Burned by Books.